the silver screen to the GM screen, never say die, asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And today we're talking 2020's Vampires vs. the Bronx, written by Oz Rodriguez and Blaze Hemingway, directed by Oz Rodriguez and starring Jaden Michael, Gerald Jones, Gregory Diaz IV, The Kid Metro, and Method Man, among others, as well as uh, little appearances by Stephen Dorff, Wesley Snipes, Zoe Saldana, lots of kids on bikes references in this, which we'll get into in a little while. This conversation about Vampires vs. the Bronx will contain spoilers for the film, so you have been warned. But before we get to our movie, we always like to talk about other things because this is a podcast about movies and games, so we like to talk about podcasts and movies and games. So Drew, what new movie, and let's, since we're this is a main episode, let's just stick to one this time, a rule I'm going to break here in a second, but what, <laughs> any, what new movie have you seen that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, I haven't watched a lot of movies recently. Now that the, the summer is officially upon us and we're at a good area to stop, we um, got uh, Apple TV, and so we have been we watched all of Ted Lasso. So I'm done with Ted Lasso. Uh, I still have not watched an episode of that. Well, let me just tell you this. You have something truly wonderful to look forward to. <laughs> but, but speaking of truly wonderful, um, I finally got to go see uh, Across the Spider-Verse, um, mm. and... <sighs> It just, it just, you know, films like this only come around once so often, and the fact that we've had two of them in a row that are yep. at a quality that exceeds, I had such high expectations for this, and it has such a hard act to follow following the first film, and it exceeded those expectations, it is its own film, and uh, the only reason I didn't, I won't call it a perfect film, is because it is a middle film it it has some burden of setting up the next film, right. something that is uh, definitely an issue with Marvel films in general. But oh boy, is it good! It's so good, and I and I you hit on the exact thing again. that I've talked about uh, with that, which is uh, it is a middle film. So yeah. you really, until we see the third film, we won't know whether it successfully did everything that it needed to do. Because sometimes you have Empire Strikes Back, which sets it up for Return of the Jedi, and everything wins. And sometimes you have Pirates of the Caribbean, where within the first ten minutes of the third film, they discount everything that happened in the second film. And so you go, well, why did I waste time watching that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not worried about the latter one. Me neither. With with Lord and Miller, uh, even, you know, as as producers, even though they, you know, didn't direct this one. But it, uh, oh. And I went with an art professor, so, like, he and I went, and, like, as an art professor, the first 20 minutes, that cold open of the the movie, again, no spoilers for it, but just, like, watching that cold open with someone who appreciates art, he's just like, we could leave now, and this would have been one of the best films I saw oh, it's, this it's year. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah it's gorgeous. visually a Absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous film. Absolutely. What have you watched that you'd recommend? Uh, well, I am on uh, my summer movie streak here, and yes. and two of the ones I've watched over the past two weeks uh, are are relevant. So I'm going to mention two, even though we said only one. Sure. Uh, one is the menu. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it is uh, Rafe Fines as a chef running this prestigious uh, uh, restaurant uh, that some foodies come to. Uh, the other is uh, From Dusk Till Dawn, which I had never seen before. 
the uh, infamous or famous uh, Robert Rodriguez film with Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney. And both of these movies have the thing in common that they've very much kind of bait and switch the audience that the movie Mm. you are watching at the beginning is not the same movie that you are in by the end of the film and that got me thinking since is a you know we do tend to gamify things how could you pull that off as a role-playing experience where (laughs) you start the campaign as one thing and but by the end it's something very different and i think that would be a delight to bring to the table and I'll just answer traditionally what I do because it's something I like to do with my players, as you as you very well know. Um, what I normally do when I do those bait and switches is I will change the game that we're actually playing. I I sometimes feel like just simply changing the the actual system that we're using help along with you know narratively changing it helps to make it feel like it's still a part of the same package. Yeah, totally very different. Yeah. And you mentioned that in our It Chapter 1 discussion about yes. playing those characters, you know, playing the characters as adults and maybe playing it as a different game. So that, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, the Menu is one of those films where uh, I know almost nothing about it. Brilliant. Uh, but I've just, I just, it's one that people have been very respectful in their recommendations of it to me, but everyone basically says, no, this is something you need to see. And it's, yes. it's just been... I. Uh, it was on the me- it was on the menu of possible films on my flight back from Ecuador, <laughs> and I just felt like that uh, unlike it, it chapter one it wasn't yeah. I w- couldn't do it justice, and I just felt like this was the film from dust dawn. However, um, I have seen saw it in the theater when it first came out. Absolutely loved it. Uh, I will not recommend any of the sequels. Uh, I was going to ask you about that off mic because I figured you had seen them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will say this uh, from dust dawn two, or maybe it's from dust dawn three has a really fun shot that um, the action takes place, but the camera is placed in the bottom of a dog bowl, uh, and it is all filmed upwards. Mm. So it's a very creative shot. It doesn't take very long, but it's one of those things where the film was so bad that just that trick shot was so novel that it really actually pulled me out of and both into the film at the same time. But that's for an absolute another time. Uh, How about role-playing games? Uh, role-playing is my D&D group uh, didn't get to meet this month. We actually were supposed to play yesterday, and that fell apart as well. So I haven't really gotten to do a whole lot of tabletop gaming. Um, but I did get turned on. I haven't gotten to play it yet, but I do want to go ahead and throw a, a, a pitch out there for people who like this podcast. Uh, this game came out last week on Steam, and it's called Kingdom 80s. And it is, the description is, Kingdom 80s is a short story-based standalone expansion set in the Kingdom universe. They have other games that are Kingdom games. Uh, But this is defend the town against the mysterious greed and discover the secrets of your family lineage. But if you watch the trailer for it, it is a kids on bikes video game. Ooh, I haven't heard of it. But uh, you you have said the magic word, so I'll definitely. Check I pulled it out. the trigger on buying it, but I haven't had a chance to actually play it yet. But sure. I'll, I'll I'll report back on how it is. But the trailer itself was like, okay, this goes right in hand with what we are talking <laughs> about on the podcast. I got to give it a shot. That's how about cool. You? What about role playing games? Um, so we're going to talk more about this when the Kickstarter launches in a month. But uh, I've just seen the basic trailers for uh, Obojima Tales from the Long Grass, yeah. which is coming from 1985 Games. It it's a, we have another month before it launches on Kickstarter, but the way they're describing it is D and D meets Studio Ghibli. The art for it looks gorgeous. It seems like it's going to be right up my teen alley uh, for the teens that I play with at the library. So I'm already making plans for 
essentially setting up that change from the world, the realm that we're playing in. You know, it'll still be D&D because that's all I want to play. But um, no, it's really pretty looking. Um, it is. I'm, I'm a Studio Ghibli fan, even though I haven't seen but half of them. Uh, tonally, it seems like it's going to be quite different. And I feel like it has that sort of levity and whimsical nature that I like from stuff like Wander Home or anything in which you're playing an anthropomorphic animal. But um, <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's fun. And I, I just... I think it'll be really kind of cool, and I think it's going to be very easy to convince any gaming group to play in that world. I don't know why someone hasn't thought of this before. So, yeah. yeah. Once again, Obajima Tales from the Long Grass from 1985 Games. All right. What about podcast recommendations, Drew? Anything that you want to uh, promote? Anything that you've heard recently that you've liked? Any trips that maybe you've taken that I'm bitterly angry about? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention that. I don't have any <laughs> podcasts that I can uh, recommend, but I will say this. A friend of mine got tickets for a live recording of The Adventure Zone, uh, which took place in Raleigh, North Carolina last weekend, uh, and was very kind to invite me along. So I got to watch The Adventure Zone live. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where, like, never meet your heroes, right? I was, I was really concerned that perhaps it just wasn't going to live up to the hype. And Rafe, of course, it was so much better uh, than you. Of course. You than it could have I, I hadn't really listened to the adventure zone in a while which is strange because they are playing in blades of the dark which is one of my favorite systems one that i really truly enjoy i like them i like the system why have i not been listening just like anything else if i listen to one podcast too much uh i kind of sour on it and i just sure. listen to uh the complete run of their balance arc fairly recently and i just decided to listen to something else i mean i haven't listened to films to be buried with in a month either so you know i've i'm I'm trying new podcasts because that's how we learn new things. Sure. But no, it was amazing. The thing I want to mention too is they played um, Sexy Battle Wizards, which is a Rowan Rook and Deckard game um, mm, okay. done by uh, Hewitt and Taylor. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where they play Sexy Battle Wizards. Your three stats are Sexy Battle and Wizard. Uh, you get three and one, two and another, and then one in the last stat. Uh, and the thing that made it really truly beautiful is everyone came in costume. So... Uh, including wigs, uh, and, and, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool. And I'm really looking forward to the, um, the, the recording of it coming out alive on their feed because I'm pretty sure you can hear me laughing nonstop through it. So there you go. <laughs> How about you? Anything that you want to recommend for podcast wise? Nothing on the podcast side for me. Uh, okay. as I said, summer is not a good, not, not usually sure. listening to a lot of podcasts during the summer. Well, there we All go. Right, well, we are not here to just talk about movies and role-playing games. We're here to talk about a specific movie and how we would gamify it. And that game is 2020's Vampires vs. the Bronx. So we'll go through our normal lineup here. Drew, you're, uh, you're under the knife here as far as under the gun here. I don't know. Under the, under the, the fangs steak. here. Yeah, steak. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so we're, we always start off with what is your elevator pitch for this movie? It's a simplified version of the media's plot. How do you sell this movie to other people? So, Drew, what is your elevator pitch for Vampires vs. the Bronx? Well, initially, uh, the easiest way to describe this would be kind of like a kid-friendly attack the block, but with vampires. Um, but then the more I thought about it, it's actually more like 2002's Hey Arnold, the movie, but with vampires and Method Man. <laughs> <laughs> Two things that were definitely uh, absent in uh, the Hey Arnold movie. <laughs> 
I actually went back and looked at the Hey Arnold um, cast just in case Method Man might have like been in there as a voice actor. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's been t- twenty years, so. Yeah. But no, it's it's really funny because I was it, when we describe it a little bit more, it's going to be easy to say it's sort of derivative of of several of the films that we've already talked about. One of the reasons why I selected it, but the way I was like looking at it's like I feel like I've seen this plot before. And I'm kind of describing it, and I was like, oh no, yeah, yeah, Hey Arnold the movie, you know, but. <laughs> I have not seen Hey Arnold the movie, so I don't have that as a frame of reference. <laughs> I couldn't tell. I mean, I have, but I couldn't tell you why. Like, <laughs> a feeling it was one of those. Uh, I was babysitting my kid brothers, and we probably watched it in the early early two thousands. That would make sense. All right, so yeah. you just kind of hinted at one of the reasons, but Drew, why did you choose this movie? Especially, I want to point out because this is our last Kids on Bikes movie pick for the season. So mm-hmm. why Vampires versus the Bronx? Well, uh, I think the expanded re- thing that you might be saying is why this one rather than other movies that uh, I know people are very confused that we didn't pick. But there's a number of reasons why I chose this one. The first is, unlike a lot of the 80s films that we've talked about, this one offers up a tremendous amount of diversity in its cast, mm-hmm. which I feel is incredibly important and is uh, underrepresented in this genre. Uh, I also picked this one because I think it's a good example of the genre. Like I said before, it pays homage to quite a few of the films that we've already discussed. So it really does feel like the conversation that we have... I almost feel like we are now experts in this conversation about what makes a good Kids on Bikes movie. Sure. Because it feels like it takes a lot of inspiration from those films. It it correctly puts together what a Kids on Bikes film is. So uh, this may feel like I'm setting up whether or not I like it. I liked it. Um, And then really more importantly is following the double act of Stand By Me and It, both being films that were written by Stephen King, I thought following The Gate with this film makes sense because both of them have Stephen Dorff in them. So, um... But that's kind of a cheat since this has Stephen Dorff in a movie within the movie. (laughs) Yes, Yes, you're right. It is a, it is it is absolutely a cheat, but also a happy co-winky dink. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So Drew, is this a kids on bikes movie? I think it is. Uh, absolutely. Um, one of the things I really like about it uh, is it has kids on bikes the entire time. We have a very specific location. We have uh, young kids and many of them, and I think they have quite a bit of agency. Though I will say. One of the things it it does that almost none of the other films that we've discussed uh, have is that it does have the kids' relationship to their parents. Usually those parents are completely absent, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's sort of part of the plot. But this is actually really kind of a nice look at kids who have their own agency but also have home lives. Like, they're not all orphans or they're not all living from broken homes and I thought that was really nice. Um, so all of that kind of... There were a couple of possibilities for my selection. And this one just really stood out as being one that I wanted to talk about more than the others. Okay. Rafe, do you think this is a Kids on Bikes movie? Do I think this is a Kids on Bikes movie? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... I, I, I did watch the trailer before I watched it. And I was like, hey, look, it's a kid. He's on a bike. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I do think this is a Kids on Bikes movie. I feel like there's a little bit of... 
questionable side to the agency that we'll get into when we discuss the film. But for the most part, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a group of kids. I like the fact that even though you do have one kid as kind of the primary one, uh, it very rarely has him just going off on his own, as it's been the problem with so many other of the kids on bikes movies we've watched. It's gone from ensemble to singular. Here, it pretty well stays with the ensemble. Um, So yeah, I, I, I like it. I think the Bronx is a little abstract, for a specific location? Yeah. I here, So here's the thing. Um, My father is from, from New York. He's from the city, not from the Bronx that I'm aware of. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm i not really familiar with it. You know, a lot of these uh, these films that take place in, like, big cities, even, like, something like Hollywood, um, I'm like, I, I don't know what it's like to be a person who lives there. So the Bronx is a specific location, but I'm like, I have no idea how big it is. Looked up on the, right. the internet. Oh, that's really big. How many people live in the Bronx? Oh, 1.5 million people. Okay, so it's it's really big, but you're right. right. It really feels like a neighborhood yes. in the Bronx. But, you know, Vampires versus a Neighborhood in the Bronx is a very awkward <laughs> title. So, <laughs> All right. So this is not a very old movie, Drew. No. As I said, 2020, we're recording this 2023. Uh, when did you watch this movie for the first time? I watched it earlier this year. This has been, of course, one that um, Doug and John had recommended on our Super 8 episode, and uh, I had been wanting to watch it for quite some time, and when you didn't select it for your last pick, um, I thought, well, okay, I definitely have got to watch it. So I've watched it within the last two months, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. How about you? As is often the answer when we do these <laughs> about movies that I have not watched, um, last night was the first time okay. I'd watched it. Um, if I have not watched I do tend to try and watch it close to our – far enough away from our recording time that I have time to digest it, that I have time to consider mm-hmm. it. Um, that that goes back to my philosophy as a film critic. I never came out of a screening of a movie and wrote the review. I always waited till the next day. I always needed. I wanted to sleep on it and have right. time to kind of to digest and comprehend what I had seen and really think about it. But I I, I did kind of procrastinate on watching it until <laughs> right before we were recording. But yeah, so uh, so this is a fresh one for me. Yeah, well, cool. Which I think is interesting because it does kind of have that connection to Attack the Block. That also was a new one for me. So yes, um, yeah. Yeah, of the films that we have discussed, it's definitely the I feel the most like Attack the Block, but also a kid-friendly version of it, which is something we'll get into when we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right, right. So let's get into that. Uh, so the movie sits at ninety uh, percent at uh, Rotten Tomatoes on the Tomato Meter with an audience score of forty-four percent, which is interesting. What's that, Drew? That's that's a huge difference between the critics loving this film and the audience going eh. Listen, um, I haven't read the audience reviews um, because I'm afraid to. Right. Um, And so maybe I'm wrong about this. But frequently when we have a film that um, involves people of color, uh, when we have audience scores that are that low, it makes me wonder uh, about people doing that thing on IMDb or uh, Rotten Tomatoes where they are bombing a film because they don't like it. So maybe maybe people just genuinely didn't like it and critics really did. Maybe the critics are lying uh, and maybe people are, you know, bigots. I don't know. That, I don't know. That opens, we'll that opens the door for a point that I, I didn't quite know how to weave in, which is that as a uh, middle-aged white man, Watching this movie, there was a part of me that felt kind of conflicted about part of it. And I almost bet if we looked at those reviews, we would see this built in. Because it is a uh, an ethnic, ethnically diverse film, which is good. Mm-hmm. We love that. Yes. But the only white people that are in the movie are the vampires, are the bad yes. guys. 
And I can see, and there's a part of me that watches it and absolutely loves this metaphor for gentrification. And there's a part mm-hmm. of me that watches it and goes, come on, not all white people are bad. But I think, and, and it's like, and that's that's kind of the white privilege showing. And I, and I recognize that. And I, I bet you, if we looked at some of those audience reviews that are bombing it, like you said, I would almost bet that that's part of the argument. Is it going, well, it's vilifying all white people and not all white people are bad. Not all black people are bad, but we certainly put out decades of movies suggesting that they are. So it may be Turnabout's fair play. Also, you know, this is, like you said, it's about gentrification. In the real world, yeah. gentrification generally only goes one, one way. way. Right, right. So, you know, <laughs> this is a reflection of a real-world event like, and we have talked about this on many occasions, like most good horror movies, you you take your kind of the headings from the real world uh, and that uh, feeds into, like, your your good horror should be more than just right. You know, Serves what is as social commentary. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. All right. So uh, let's get into the way we look at the movie, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because uh, I think we can. We probably. It's safe to say we'll get into rating the movie later. But I think it's safe to say both of us think higher than forty-four uh, percent on the movie, <laughs> yes. uh, or else we probably wouldn't be having a very good discussion about it. But so, Drew, we'll start with the good. What is good about Vampires versus the Bronx? You know, I usually like to start with this one. I think the kids are particularly good actors, especially the three main leads. You know, it's you, you mentioned the fact that we are middle-aged white men, and we are, but we're also middle-aged white men from the South, um, which is a very different culture. <laughs> that is not adding any points to our favor here, Drew. <laughs> no, I know. But, uh, sorry, I should say the rural South, <laughs> which is even oh worse, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it's like to grow up in, in an urban neighborhood in a multicultural, multiracial uh, urban neighborhood. But I think this film paints a really good example of that neighborhood life and kind mm-hmm. of the ebb and the flow and the mix of cultures and the styles and the languages and the music and the food. Food is such a huge a part of this too. You know, there's a lot of folks mentioning like things that they want to eat and such. Um, but I feel like the kids are really good actors and I feel like the the way they're depicted they're both kind of archetypical characters for the kids on bikes genre which is mm-hmm. going to be very easy for us to stat them um, but also uh, the way they interact with one another is really cool and the way they interact with their their parents their neighborhood and their culture is really excellent so I thought that was really smart it felt like it was written and filmed by someone in the know yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels very, it feels very honest. Uh, yeah, and, and in genuine. That, especially, is, is actually, I think the word I was, I, I think is the way I would probably describe it too. Yeah, but honest, yeah. right? Um, and yeah, the kids are great. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Even the 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 like the three girls who are kind of off to the side for most of the movie and are their, their primary purpose is just kind of to antagonize our our main <laughs> character. Uh, e- even them, I felt like there was some authenticity to to them as well. Agreed. Yeah. No. Uh, no. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, what about you? What's what's something you liked? Well, kind of what I I made the comment before about this being uh, the social commentary there that this is this is a metaphor for neighborhood gentrification uh, mm-hmm. in in such a beautiful and lovely way and it's right. so well done and yeah there's a part of me that would like be like to be like hey can we have a white kid in there to to kind of you know completely be diverse. And as I said, there's a part of me that's like, no, no, no. We've had our movies. We have Stand By Me. We have The Goonies. Yeah. We, we don't need to, to, to be in here. Um, but I just, much like Joss Whedon using 
vampires and monsters as a metaphor for high school and teenage life. I love here it being presented as a metaphor for that gentrification and that taking out, dominating the neighborhood and that force that you can't overcome. And and especially there's a moment and it it it, it barely connects to the supernatural, but that that moment when Miguel's mom realizes the vampires are real. Like mm-hmm. she she has now come face to face with the vampire. She realizes this is reality, and her response was, "We're gonna stay here tonight, and in the morning we are leaving the Bronx because it's not worth it." And it's like, but that's what's going on with gentrification is that people right. do have that response. It's not worth it to fight the system. So I, I absolutely love that. I think that is a brilliant. I think I think that elevates this film so much more than a seventy five minute kid on bike horror movie. Yeah, agreed. I agree. Um, so I, we mentioned this in the in the early uh, stages of this, but um, this is uh, there's a again I use the term derivatism. It's not derivative, but there's a lot of references or stylistic approaches that make this feel like Attack the Block again, a kid friendly uh, Attack the Block. This is I don't even know if I would call this a horror film. Um, no. In in many ways, like there are horrific moments, but they are so toned down. This has a PG thirteen rating, and they. I don't want to say make the most of that PG-13 rating. When we get to the ugly, I'm, I want to talk about that. But, you know, this clearly is Attack the Block and Lost Boys. There is a little bit of Goonies. There's a little bit of Super 8 in it um, as well. But really, uh, the Lost Boys and Attack the Block really are really strong. In fact, it would have made almost more sense for them to have watched the Lost Boys yes. as a film. To be, I mean, it makes more sense as kids doing it, but Blade also makes more sense because you have... Marvel's first successful film, and it is a black protagonist, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so. yeah. No, and I'd even jotted down that, like, the missing posters uh, all over the place at the beginning of the movie felt very much yes. like the setup of The Lost Boys. And what cracked me up is in the middle of that, you had, when Miguel interacts with Tony about the bat that's in the bodega, and uh-huh. Tony says, you know, would you ask King Arthur, sword, uh, King Arthur for his sword? And I was like, hey, kid, who would be king? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's funny. I forgot about that line, but I think when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I have to remember that one. Yeah, it, it does feel like there's little bits of almost everything that we've talked about. So, yeah. And it was really, it gives me a warm feeling, too. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, they have, they do watch Blade, which Steven Dorff was the main bad guy in Blade. So you do have that gate connection there as well. I did. I love that. I love mm-hmm. those little, that, that feeling yeah. that this movie knows what genre it's trying to be in and it succeeds at putting it in there agreed yeah we should probably mention that um the director of this is is someone who for the most part i was like what's it called i kind of like this like what else have they done they've mostly done saturday night live shorts so like oz rodriguez is a director of of the shorts for that and uh it has a um, you know it's sort of like when um (laughs) this is a weird comparison but sort of like when film directors whose prior experiences are music videos yeah. um, come on to the stage when you're like, oh, okay, you can sort of tell because there's like these uh, pop explosions and they're really good at set pieces as far as uh, like kind of what the hook is for it. But uh, yeah. Also, I should say that it, we kind of both mentioned this. I just want to draw the attention to the fact that, again, there's really good parenting moments with this mm-hmm. um, where the parents are asserting their authority 
and trying to kind of take away the agency from the kids. There's a lot of grounding in this one. There's a lot of, I'm setting the rules if you're living in my under my roof because you're disrespecting the neighborhood. So a lot of the authority is tied into the place as well uh, and yes. the community, which I, I really liked because the kids then have to go against that in order to demonstrate their agency, but they do so in respect to the environment. So Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So. All right, well, what else do you think is good about this one? I mean, I feel like we've kind of covered it. Um, uh, so I would ask you if you have anything else that you think before we start going on to stuff that we didn't like I, as much. I've got one more, and that is um, yeah. something that I brought up during The Lost Boys, which is mm. if you're going to play with vampires, you have to establish your mythology. In fact, uh, when we started this podcast way back when, my intention had been to have an essay that accompanied each movie that we watched. And I, I did an essay on the, the common uh, rules of vampires and how you could possibly adjust them for your game. No, you haven't missed those essays. I didn't release any of them, but I wrote it. Uh, and because and, Lost Boys <laughs> did such a good job of establishing its mythology. And this film does a phenomenal job of establishing its mythology as far as vampires go, mm -hmm. uh, even though, much like Lost Boys, our characters aren't 100% sure that what they know is right. right. They establish right. that mythology, and they're pretty darn consistent with that mythology, and I loved that, too. Agreed. Yeah, I definitely, when we start getting into the gamification of this, I am going to draw on several of the things that we discussed in The Lost Boys. Yeah. And actually attack the block. I, I jumped back to our notes from both of those films to to make sure that we were being consistent with how we <laughs> like to gamify certain ideas. Uh, okay, so it sounds like we both have quite a few th th good things to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. So what is on the bad side of this for you, Drew? I'm always, as, as a person who likes Doctor Who, uh, especially like the classic era, I'm hesitant to diss a film for its special effects because, you know, a movie should not live and die by its special effects. But there's some bad ones in this one. But really the thing that I find that I, I dislike the most is there were several characters who I felt had so much potential Mm -hmm. uh, and probably they had more scenes filmed or had more stuff with their script that we just didn't get to see. And in particular, Father Jackson, played mm -hmm. by Method Man, who seemed like they were going to be a bigger part of the overall outcome of this film, and Rita, who seemed yeah. like she was going to be a lot more, <laughs> have a lot more potential for the outcome of this film. I think both of the potential for both of those characters were kind of squandered. Yeah, okay. That's that's fair. You do have to love that the film pulls a scream though. That it's it's biggest star being Zoe Saldana. Yeah. And she doesn't make it past the first scene. And like to the point that I didn't recognize her at first and then suddenly it was by the time I was like, "Oh, that's Zoe Saldana." Oh, okay. I hope she comes back as a vampire and that's they establish yes. their mythology that that's not how the vampires uh, propagate. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. I agreed. I thought for sure she was going to come back um, yeah. and we were going to get a replication of vampires. We're going to have more of them, but without the dust of the ashes of the first vampire. What a really clever idea. Uh, that will yeah. come back into play with with the role playing game gamification. Um, yeah, nope, she's gone. She's just she's just a snack. So, so yeah, I, I I yeah I agree with you. I mean, especially Rita, it felt like like I loved that she accepted that vampires were real because of her background, because of her lineage, because she's from Haiti, mm -hmm. 
And she's like, my grandparents have been telling me about this all the time. You know, she just accepts it. And I love that. But it felt like it was very abrupt as to how she became part of the group. And we never really got her story as opposed to Uh the three the three boys. Uh, So, yeah, I I definitely agree with you that there could have been some more there, uh, especially for those characters. And frankly, when I was making my list, because I always uh, I know that we're going to do the draft. So I always am jotting down character names as the characters are introduced. And I thought Gloria was going to be a bigger part of this movie. I did, too. Yeah, I thought thought she was going to be the primary female character, and then she wasn't, and Rita was in, and it was like, where the heck did Gloria go? Well, I, oh boy, let me tell you, I thought, and I, I don't want, didn't want to add her as the bad because Gloria is our narrator, sort of. You know, she opens and closes the movie, but I thought they were going to use her as a way of letting the Bronx know that the vampires were there. I thought we were going to get to see bad things happening to people. And not seeing who the the antagonist was because filming them with your f- cell phone and sending out the internet would just show people being torn apart. Now, right. admittedly, that is tonally against what the entire movie sets up. I was just thinking, I haven't seen that in a film, particularly a vampire film, and I was really looking forward to seeing that. So uh, they they do use that. I felt like um, Miguel showing the, the vampire footage that doesn't have a vampire in it was a precursor to that being the kind of sure. deus ex machina for, for the conclusion. But nope, they did something nope. totally different. I kind of like what they did, but like, you know, and again, I can't take down a movie when they don't live up to uh, your plot points in my expectations right, because that's right. not my movie. Well, and I guess that's kind of my bad is as much as I, I, I like that Rita joins them and is so accepting of vampires quickly. It's a little convenient. It's it's not. There's yeah. not a ton of time that's having to be spent on persuasion. Uh, and, and there's a couple of those moments of convenience in the movie that I wish had been executed a little better. Particularly Frank and Bobby, their kind of final altercation where Bobby tells him, you know, you're going to be the kid brother. Yeah, you're, that's that's all you're going to be, and suddenly, oh, Frank's not a problem anymore because this kid, because right. this because this t- teenage kid talked sense into him, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know that I buy that. I, I felt like that felt a little too convenient. Well, it's, this is the same thing that we have to kind of look at this the same way we looked at BMX Bandits, in that this is actually when we let's let's go into the ugly, right? Um, <laughs> who is this movie for? This is a kid-friendly horror film, which is really a kid-friendly comedy with horror aspects in it. This is a kid's movie. In the same way that um, I said that The Gate was sort of like a kid-friendly gateway horror film, and Lost Boys is a teen-friendly gateway horror film, this is less of a horror film, more of a kid-friendly comedy with horrific elements, but I don't know if it's consistent tonally. So, like, the idea that a, a kid can convince the thrall of a vampire to go against their masters in one conversation, that makes sense from a kid's point of view. It's okay. it's simple. So, like, I feel like a lot of the choices in this film, we as adults have to step back and try to imagine what it's like as a kid's film where we don't have to have complicated emotional arcs for characters. I think it does set up uh, the thrall, like kind of stepping away from them because he says, you know, like, oh, when are you going to make me? And they don't, and that's already on his mind, and the, he's that's, he's kind of already thinking it, but he's already done such horrific things. We shouldn't ever side with this character, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, like the kid has to, the kids have to be the ones to change everything, which is, which kind of pans out at the very end. But then with a PG thirteen, you know, in in the United States, 
I'm sure you've seen this Lord of the Rings meme, like, you know, if it's a PG-13 movie, it gets one F-bomb. Uh, where would you put it right. in Lord of the Rings? Because they were technically, you know, PG-13 films. At the end of this film, we get the most violence that's in the movie. We get some profanity, and it just feels so out of place tonally right. with the rest of the film. It's just, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? And that, I think, was the main problem with this film is... I, I was completely on board once I realized it was the primary audience was people much younger than me. I was still enjoying <laughs> it. And I was like, oh, this is what a, what a good example. I, I could absolutely show this to the kids at my library. You know, it's, it feels like a, a kid. Oh, nope, can't. <laughs> once the <laughs> F-bomb drops, I'm done. And I, yeah, it just, I, I'm one of those people where I like really feel like profanity is cathartic. I like saying it myself, even though we don't do it here on this podcast. But I also feel like it isn't necessary to just throw it in there. I feel like it needs a purpose. If a character normally says it, fine. If it sets up a film, fine. If it sets up the 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 conclusion of a film, great. If your character's been saying it from the get-go and it's an R-rated film, fantastic. You know, you, you, you look at uh, Malcolm Tucker, played by um, Peter Capaldi, who's just dropping it constantly. That's who your character is. Great. But this film didn't need it. Uh, no. It didn't use it before, it didn't need it then, and it felt so out of place, and it was just kind of like, oh, I don't know if I would show this to certain audiences now. And that bummed me out. Yeah. No, I, I can't disagree with that. I, I I think it's interesting on our bads. Uh, I had one more bad. I'll, I'll come back oh, to it. Oh, please. Oh, no, no, cool. Yeah, yeah. Interesting on our bads that both of us liked the movie enough to do a little of defending the film from our own perspectives of what the other person thought was bad. And I don't think either of us were like, you know, sycophantic to the film, but we just were like, oh, we'll think about it this way, you know? And I, yeah. I think that that actually speaks highly to the quality of the, how, how much we may have liked the film because we, yeah. we both, we can see the bad, but we can also excuse it. And we certainly have had movies where we've seen the bad and been like, yeah, this is a problem. Um, the only other right. bad I have, just because it ties to our definition of a Kids on Bikes movie, is like as much as like... The, the climactic conflict with the vampire commander, uh, which is a weird title, made me think of Cobra Commander, but um, <laughs> the, the commander, uh, and you have what I kind of refer to as the Peter Parker moment, because Sam Raimi did it with his Spider-Man films, and Mark Webb did it with his Spider-Man films, where you have like the people rallying behind the hero, and you have that here. The people of the neighborhood come and rally behind these boys, but that means the adults are there too, and while no, they're not incredibly effective... I do feel like that deprives the kids a little bit of their agency in that climactic battle. I disagree. Um, I completely see your point. Um, and I was wondering at first when I thought, saw it if that was going to be an argument that I was also going to support. But the fact that the parent, the adults are so incredibly ineffective <laughs> and that it is required it's the kids who do all the dirty work, all right. the effective stuff. I was like, no. It's good because you knew that a film like this had to have the neighborhood come together as one sure. to solve the problem because otherwise that is what is being set up, right? Like it, it and, it's, and it's the message of it where in the form of gentrification, the neighborhood has to come together, right? Because yeah. these are a united – they are united regardless of their culture, regardless of their race, regardless of everything – they are a neighborhood. They are, their borough is important to them. You know that. You know otherwise you don't. What's the point of a little mayor, right? Yeah, I mean I get it. 
uh, I was worried that one of them was going to like, you know, maybe a parent was going to save their kid. Uh, mm-hmm. But nope, <laughs> it's each one of our kids gets a hero moment, which, you know, like uh, unlike something like The Gate or Super 8 or, yeah, of course, Frog Dreaming. Uh, unlike those three films, each one of our f- three main heroes gets to do an equal amount of help to solving yeah. the problem. So, All right. Anything else you want to add before we move on from the good, the bad, and the ugly? No, I think I think that sums it up. Okay. Pretty decent, right. yeah. Well, then next I have the question to ask you, Drew. Being a, a, a white male who uh, grew up in uh, rural <laughs> south, <laughs> which of these kids were you? Of the kids depicted, which one were you most like at their age? For, for me, it's Luis... Um, I, I've talked about being the sensitive kid in the gate, and I've talked about being kind of the the wild pyromaniac from from Super Eight. But both of us have discussed how much we like reading and knowledge, and the fact that Luis knows about uh, monsters from movies. It's the only one of the th- the three that I of the main kids that I could possibly be. I I agree with that. I almost was going to say, Luis, myself, the only reason I'm going to uh, change that answer, one, because you just took it and it's kind of boring if we both were the same kid, Uh, but but two, maybe I'm having a particularly positive day today, but I like to think that I was a little more charismatic than Luis was when I was that age, and that would be more Miguel then. Miguel doesn't have the knowledge, but he's open to the knowledge, but he's got the charisma. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, like I said, I I was I like to start fires and um, and read <laughs> books. So like, yeah, I, it's funny too because I was thinking about which kid I I would be most like, and I'm like, well, currently, you know, I, I'm I'm a nonprofit leadership. That's that's what I got my master's degree, and I'm I work in small communities. I'm I'm really big in bringing people together and and finding what strengths are like that. Actually, part of my degree, but it's like, nope, <laughs> as as a 12-year-old, or right. however old they are, are they, and, and they say their name a number of times. Are they 14? Did they give their age? Because I didn't catch it. Because I know that the girls were 16. Yeah, uh, and they're definitely because that was, there, was by, a, there was an age difference between them. Yeah, I feel like maybe even the mom shouts out, because doesn't he have a, like, a birthday coming up or something like that? But yeah, it's, uh, I, yeah. I almost said um, Rita because of her knowledge, but her knowledge is cultural. Um, yeah. And I, that doesn't really work. Uh, and I, I love the fact that it's just like, oh, no, I watch a lot of movies. Here you go. Uh, and it would just be j- just like me to go, no, here's how we fight vampires. I saw Lost Boys. And then, just like Lost Boys, that is not exactly how things work. Um, right. So. All right. It is time to rate the movie uh, for new listeners, which you picked a bad time to join us because we're at the end of our season. But anyway, for new listeners, uh, we rate our movies on a double axis scale. Uh, First, we rate them on how good of a movie it is on a scale of 1 to 10, and then on a scale of 1 to 10, how good it is within the genre, the kids on bikes subgenre. So, Drew, how good of a movie is this? Yeah, well, um, this was tricky for me. And, and, you know, you and I have already said that we're going to re-rate some of our, our films based around just kind of getting a better understanding of the kids on bike genre over the years. I, I enjoyed the film. I didn't love the film. And for that reason, I think I'm going to give it a seven. Again, it's the that third act tonal shift, uh, even though I know that this is not necessarily for me, um, that kind of weird shift at the end stopped it from being a great film uh, as far as it, just a, a movie for me. 
But yeah, I think yeah. a seven's actually quite generous and fair. How about you? I don't know about generous and fair, but it's exactly the number that I had in mind on my scale of one to ten. <laughs> so I'm also giving it a seven. Um, I, I do feel like there are a few things lacking from this movie that could help make it a better film. It is a short movie. It's an hour 25. Yeah, no, it's true. It's quick. Which which is not a problem. And there are many. In fact, I, I was happy because most of the new movies I've been watching for my little summer extravaganza here have been two hours plus. So, you know, under 90 minutes. Yeah, I'll take it. It's amazing how many movies that I have watched recently have deciding factor of whether or not I should watch them has been their runtime. Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like, again, I think those those moments of convenience that I talked about earlier and such, uh, I, 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 I feel like seven is, is very fair to where this movie uh, should be. And seven out of ten, that's not bad at all. So. Oh, no, not at all. Although yeah, no, I, I, it is interesting, I'm looking at our scales of previously ranked movies, and for me... A seven is a little below the middle. For you, a seven puts it second to last as far <laughs> as the 12 movies that we have gone. So it puts it really down on your list. And again, we're going to re-rank it. I know, I know. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, you're just looking at my list now, you know, the highest I have any movie is a nine. So right, too because often you don't it's... believe in a 10 for some odd reason. <laughs> <laughs> and the lowest I have is a six point five. Yeah, <laughs> I'm 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 generally I think uh, a middle of the road kind of person. Um, like you need to be truly great or truly horrific to really kind of fall out of my middle of the road zone. Um, I think I am very forgiving for a lot of stuff. Um, now, if we were ranking it, you know, one to twelve, which I think is something that we probably will do in a future episode, um, that'll be interesting to see where it sits. Uh, when we talk about where it falls into the uh, kids on bikes genre, that'll be a little different too. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's get into that. As a kids on bikes movie, Drew, how does this fall? How do you rank this one? It's so interesting. I think it ranks fairly high as a kids on bikes film because they have agency. They have a neighborhood they're protecting. They are on bikes a lot of the time, and one of the things that's always going to boost it for me is the idea of, of diversity in its cast. I feel like the kids are individual. There are four movies on my list that I have in the seven, seven and a half range, which is, you know, it's right. It's kind of right in the middle of the road. And I, once again, I'm giving this uh, a seven because I think the film that it's most like is the lost boys. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's never going to reach the, the heights of attack the block for me. Uh, but I think because it is uh, kind of a, a youth-themed kids on bikes film, yeah, a seven, maybe seven and a half. If I was feeling generous, if we if we rearrange some stuff, but uh, I think that's where it's going to go for me. How about you? Uh, I guess I am feeling generous because I think uh, seven and a half sounds good. Um, I I do think it's a good kids on bikes movie. The kids are great. Uh, we have bikes. We have skateboards. We have skateboards being turned into weapons that I love. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, uh, that was really good. Yeah. All right, seven and a half. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but I do feel like the Bronx is too much of an abstract for a specific location. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like we do have a little bit of adult involvement that does kind of change some agency. And, yeah. and and obviously you and I don't see completely eye to eye on. I don't think it's detrimental. I think seven and a half no. is still really solid as far as a kids on bikes movie. Um, but I, but I, but I don't think it's as perfect as some other movies that we've watched. So it's true. But I'll tell you something. In, you know, if we were to look at the entirety of the genre and only select twelve out of all the genre, 
I would still consider putting this on the list, maybe even above quite a few of the ones that we've we've chosen. So yeah, seven and a half is not is not terrible. And you're right. There's something about taking again. This is we talk about childhood things. Taking toys and turning toys into weapons is such a kids on bikes staple. You know, using the things that are available to a kid versus dipping into the adult world. Yeah, I really like that. Also, also the religious nature of the neighborhood means they oh, yeah. all have such super access to crucifixes, um, which is really funny, but it, like, it makes, like, really, these vampires should have done their research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. All right, Drew, it is time for our favorite and our listeners' favorite part of the show, our Kids on Bikes draft. Each of us has a Kids on Bikes team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Uh, Drew, why don't you go ahead and list off your team so far? Okay. Before I list my team, I would ju- I just want to say this is the most nervous I have been going into the draft. Because <laughs> there is a character that will tie my entire team together. If you take it, I'm going to be heartbroken. So I'm just saying this. Okay. So uh, I wish you hadn't said that because I have the feeling it's the character that I'm going to take. (laughs) I really do have the feeling it's going to be the character Uh, that I want to take. I will be so heartbroken that I may just quit this podcast and never do another episode. (laughs) No pressure on Ray. All right. So for my team, Ivar, for on the Goonies, I have Data. For Attack the Block, I have Moses. For the Lost Boys, I've got Grandpa Emerson. For Now and Then, I have Sam. For Super 8, I have Alice. For The Kid Who Would Be King, I have Kay. For BMX Bandits, I have Judy. For Frog Dreaming or The Quest, I have Cody Walpole. For The Stand, I've got Chris Chambers. For It, I've got Richie Tozier. Uh, For The Gate, I've got Terry. And, uh, well, I just have to wait because it was my suggestion, so Rafe gets to pick first. Rafe, who do you have on your team? Uh, My team is Mikey from Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block. Uh, The Lost Boys is Edgar Frog. From now and then, I have Dr. Roberta as the adult. Uh, Super 8 was Charles. The Kid Who Would Be King, I have Betters. BMX Bandits, I have Goose. The Quest, I have Jane. Stand By Me, I have Vern. Beverly Marsh from It Chapter 1. And finally, from the gate, I have Glenn. Except for not finally, because I get to pick first from this movie. And now I have to really double think because you had you had to play the guilt card because now i i know now i know you know um, which one i you know, i you know really which I, I i thought i was picking a character that was going to surprise you and the the way you just said it uh, I, I i have the feeling now that i have picked the character that you need to tie your team together and should i let that impact me because on one hand uh, we are we are doing these completely separate, and so it shouldn't uh, influence my pick. But on the other hand, you're right. It is a character. If I'm thinking, if it's the character I'm thinking of, it's a character that would certainly tie your crew together in a way that would not necessarily tie my crew together. So to, to go to talk this out a little bit, I looked at these characters, our primary protagonists. Uh, Miguel Martinez is uh, charismatic. He's a leader. He is the heart. I have heart. I don't need that. Bobby is more of a heavy. I love Bobby as a character. This confliction. uh, Confliction? Is that even a word? This conflict between uh, hunting vampires with his friends or joining up with a gangster squad. Like, that was really interesting to me. And the, the fact that... I felt like they they gave that heart with that part of the storyline. Like I liked Bobby as a character a lot more than I anticipated. Yeah, no, I agree. 
I think um I think that idea too. You know, you know, we there's a, a lot of characters to potentially pick from this, and we we could probably list that too. But I almost wish we had more of a uh that Bobby and versus Henny's conflict with the with the gang. Yeah. Um it is very similar to again Tack the Block where like the potential is you know there is this out, outside force right the gentrification um <laughs> the the vampires who we say the the company is is uh Murnau uh, which is, of course, F.W. Murnau is the, the director of, of Nosferatu. Um, right, along with the image of Vlad the Impaler, of Vlad, who was the yeah, inspiration Vlad for Dracula. Which is such a, such a cool idea, and it's I such a clever it. little thing. There's a, there's quite a few Easter eggs in here that are, are that are fun. So, like, you know, Henny, I don't believe, is a teenager. It, they look like they're in their earlier no, 20s. No, I think they're adult, um, yeah. But it, it would have been interesting if this had been a little more three-sided rather than two-sided, Right, like yeah. where that pull was bigger, but they were also a bigger threat for the community. But again, but I think part of the reason I like them doing it through Bobby's character is that gave us background on Bobby as a character. What mm-hmm. happened to his dad? We don't have that on the other two. Where is Miguel's True. dad? Where is Luisa's dad? We we don't have that, but we have that on Bobby, and that becomes a, a, a an essential part of who he is. But I kind of already have that kind of character wrapped up too you know and Luis is the brains of the operation and i kind of already have that character wrapped up too i i really liked gloria at the beginning when i thought she was going to be a bigger part of the story like i put her name down i was like okay this is going to be great this is going to be phenomenal and then but then she is our narrator as you pointed out for the opening and closing but that's it so the character i had settled on was instead of picking another kid, picking a second adult mm-hmm. and taking Tony, mm-hmm. who is the owner of the bodega that's kind of at the center of everything. But that's the character you need to tie your team together. <laughs> and I Listen. didn't realize it until you said that. So I'm going to go with Gloria. Are you sure? Yeah. Listen, I am nothing if not adaptable. You are, I mean, I'm playing my hand here. You're absolutely right. The moment Tony <laughs> appeared, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, that's that's what I need. I uh, thought I was going to surprise you by picking a second adult because neither of us have picked second adults throughout all of this. We've all – we had our adult and we both kind of locked into that's our adult. And one of the things that's interesting is, yeah. I really like Tony as a character. I really like Tony as a father figure. I like the idea that he helped kind of raise these kids and I could see yeah. that working well in any kids on bike having that kind Agreed. of story. Agreed. But I think you're right. He fits your team better than he fits mine. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Gloria. Listen, I'm super thrilled for me, but I'm also really bummed that I feel like I have guilted you into this decision. <laughs> I was also going. There's no way he's going to expect me to uh, <laughs> to pick a second adult because I have Grandpa Emerson on my team, who is, let's face it, just one of the reasons that the the peripheral adult exists. There's right. several, you know, in in the kids on bike genre, in, actually in more films than we actually chose uh it, it, it's a bigger part and i was like oh, i'm so excited about this but i'm like also realizing that like yeah he, he could potentially do it i want you your team is all heart man if you need to take tony i i don't nope. get it i get it no nope, i will be heartbroken but i completely understand i don't want you to have a false pick i want nope. you to i'm i'm locked into gloria i said it uh, i i i do think there is use for gloria as well i i really Agreed. do yeah, and, and hey, you know, she's a live streamer, and put her on the team with Charlie, the filmmaker. You know, there's some fun there. 
I gotta say, your team, depending on how you're selecting, your team dynamic of people who are good with movies yeah. are really solid. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. If I had bet money, I was thinking that you were going to get um, Luis. He he was he was a pretty good contender. If I if I didn't already have a character that I felt like kind of fit in there, if I didn't, yeah. I mean, Luis and Betters are not that that different. It's true, but you have a, a movie person who is also yeah. um, knowledgeable yeah. about the supernatural. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. All right, well, Drew, who are you picking? A little pyrrhic, I'm gonna say. <laughs> it feels a little bittersweet that um, clearly I'm taking Tony. Um, yes, like I have a board that I will take pictures of now that I've got my complete team that has index cards with every single character on it. Uh, I almost post a picture of it, but it already has Tony's card on there with a lot of question marks about who I'm going to pick. This is, of course I'm picking Tony. The fact that so many of my kids are parentless, um, are troublemakers, uh, and it makes so much sense that there is someone who will be a father figure. Now, I don't know if this is something that you will care about, Rafe. Our team, our final teams are, you know, seven kids and one peripheral adult. Right, which means if so, you want to go with Tony, that means you've got to throw Grandpa Emerson to the wayside, and that means I potentially could snatch him up. Yeah, so I'm just yeah. I'm just saying, like, I don't know if that's your silver lining on this one, but um, a Grandpa Emerson and Edgar Frog on the same team is uh, a thing. Um, anyway, uh, there I almost we go. went ahead. I almost went ahead and took Tony and we're like, okay, let's negotiate about who you want in order for me to drop. Tony. I was like, nah, that's, that's not part of how we set this up. We won't. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss how to gamify vampires versus the Bronx for use in your RPG game. Hi, I'm Austin Rude. And I'm Phil Rude, and we host The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Clever name. Each week, we watch a movie and bring our discussion to the mics. You can hear my opinions and Austin's wrong opinions about everything we watch. No, you're the wrong one. Get out. The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back. It's now time to discuss the role-playing games. Uh, we are going to talk about how you can gamify this film so that anyone can play a role-playing game session inspired by this movie regardless, and that's the important part, regardless of the system that they're using. The first thing that we always want to talk about is how to set up this game before we start playing, and that's our session zero. What discussions do you need to have with your players before you play? Now, this can usually... In- Include things like the genre, the ratings, what you don't want to include in the game. But because we're assuming that your players are on board with you playing a movie inspired, a game inspired by a movie, um, there's a couple of things that we want to look at. Rafe, I bet you have, we've kind of already talked about this. I know you have things to say about it, but I think the first thing is, look, um, Vampires vs. the Bronx really focuses on the strength of a multicultural neighborhood. So yes. you... As a game master and your players need to be on the same page as to how you are representing that diversity respectfully uh, and making sure that everyone agrees what is and what is not appropriate. Yeah, Yeah, and respectfully and appropriate are your key words there. Um, Much like the movie, we don't want to make these uh, shallow uh, stereotypes. Of course, yeah. 
way back in our second episode, we discussed Attack the Block, and one of the things that we thought was really important is because Attack the Block does something that no other film that we've discussed does, which is talking about um, vertical neighborhoods, right? So it all takes place in buildings that are a, a, an actual vertical building. <laughs> Boy, that was eloquent, right? Um, <laughs> I think you need to take a moment to craft a rough map of the neighborhood. Now, again, the Bronx is Burrow. It's huge. It is essentially its own city within a larger city. It's got its own government. Um, it's got 1.5 million people. So I'm not expecting you to make a map like that. But what you may want to do is just draw a slightly detailed map really focus on the neighborhood that your characters are going to be focusing on. Again, remember, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you're probably looking at villages and towns rather than, you know, city boroughs. But who knows? There's a lot of huge cities uh, already existing in, in D&D. Any really system that you use is going to have, you know, large neighborhoods. So just kind of get an idea of who's where. Uh, maybe include current businesses, uh, storefront, something along those lines. Um, and and because this film is about gentrification, I would start with businesses that have already closed, right? Prior to the game starting, talk about something that was important and essential to the neighborhood that's already gone. Uh, so we can start to look at what your neighborhood, what the emphasis of the neighborhood is, what is it that's important to them. Uh, and then maybe decide on things like home and safe spaces as well. Uh, or also, because it is a part of the film, we didn't really talk about Method Man as Father Jackson. Holy spaces, too, might, might be important. Because, again, you know, even though the, the threat in this film is vampires, it does not have to be vampires. Right. Um, it makes sense to. Uh, and again, just like our Lost Boys episode, your vampires do not have to be the same kind of vampires that we have. There's a lot of great vampire films out there. We could do yeah. just vampire films on a podcast and be good for many, many, many years. The, the only thing I would change from Drew's suggestion with crafting the map of the borough town, I would not use detail. I would try and I would just sit down with a piece of paper and draw it like a 12-year-old would. Because a 12-year-old is not going to use any form of measurement. Their, their blocks may not be identical in size and length uh, or anything like that. And I would just like, okay, here's where this is. Here's where Tony lives. Here's where the church is. Here's where Henny's gang hangs out. Here's, you know, and just just flesh it out. And I would, I would draw it like a 12-year-old map. And... Drew does mention the, the the safe spaces and, you know, what's being bought out and that kind of stuff. Do have some fun with those new business store names. Like, I mean, Bone and Thread? <laughs> is, is, it a, is it a restaurant? Is it a tailor shop? Right. I don't know. Farm to table pizza, the butter store. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Because that's uh, oh, the idea that Tony has to start taking oat milk and kale because that's, you know. Right. I mean, the, have the some thread fun of that. canvas bags. You know, the, yes, the, yes, the threat of canvas bag. Yeah. All right, Drew, we talk about truths when we are talking about how to best design a campaign based on something. What are the truths that are going to remain true throughout this that you have come up with? Yeah, so um, it's following these truths, again, I, I don't have a lot of them, but I have more so than I, I feel like are probably even necessary. Um, so I think a couple of these can probably be schmooshed together. This is a an invasion story, right? So, you know, it's a gentrification story, but in a way it's a cultural invasion story. Yes. Um, but the important part is the characters, this is the characters' home turf. They have to know this better than the enemy. So when in doubt, the PCs will know or know someone who knows 
what's happening in any building that's not controlled by the threat. The threat, of course, is capital T. That's what we use when we're talking about um, whatever the enemy is. So it can be vampires if you're definitely doing vampires. This this could also work with a uh, kind of a pod person sort of a threat, referring back to one of my favorite films, The Thing, you know, something that anything that assimilates would work as well. The game is always going to be truest to the movie if the threat is an allusion to a real-world problem, um, in case, again, gentrification. Uh, The threat should have mundane agents, right? Like, and I think, you know, those that can recruit third parties. um, We got Polidari, right? So he's, even though he turns against the vampires, uh, having that, I would say, Renfield-like character uh, makes a lot of sense. They can go where the other ones can't. Like Lost Boys, your threat does not have to follow the classic rules of any creature, right? So maybe maybe your neighborhood is being filled by f- uh, Frankenstein monsters. Doesn't seem great, uh, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you do need to establish which ones and what the what, the, what rules apply to them. Yeah, so we have a... a like, again, like Lost Boys, the threat had a head vampire uh, or vampire commander. Again, you're right, does not sound... <laughs> Like, they don't use that term in Blade, I don't think. So no. I feel like they, it would be would made more sense to refer to it, you know. Well, the, but the boys don't use it. The vampires use it. The vamp. You're right. You're right. The vampires use it. Yeah. yeah. The boys. If the boys had used it, like I totally because they do use terms that they get from Blade because they they refer mm-hmm. themselves as daywalkers, daywalkers. at one point. Um, yeah. That's, but, that's funny. But yeah, no. The vampires are the one to call the, the their leader commander, and I'm just like, okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a choice. <laughs> um, so you know, like Lost Boys, if the the commander is killed, the other ones uh, are set free. That does not come out at all in the movie. So maybe that's not a thing that that is necessary. It does come out late in the movie. Rita brings that up. She says, "If you kill the head vampire, it weakens the rest of them." You guys do know that, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, Rita is. I guess guess that was the only real useful thing that Rita did. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, there is a MacGuffin that the threat wants, and the PCs are going to get their hands on that, and the 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 threat wants that back. And if they get it back, the situation is going to go from bad to worse. Uh, in this case, of course, a really cool skeleton key that opens a box. Like I love how it's, this is our most important thing. Let's ship it separate from everything else. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Weird, <laughs> and in a and in a, a deposit bag uh, with a USB key that happens to illustrate all of our plans. Right, I know. Again, <laughs> this is a film for kids yes. where the the <laughs> the exposition needs to be very easy to access. And then an optional one, um, which I think is fun but isn't necessary, which is an already existing movie can inform the players of what to do. Uh, a la Blade in this film, uh, so setting the rules. Have the players decide on the film and give them a limited amount of time to remember everything they can, and whatever they can remember is what is establishing the rules. I think that's like a, like the film being a film in, within a film, this is a game within a game. Um, the memory of a film uh, deciding on what it is. Now, again, if you're a game master who has to plot out everything uh, ahead of time because that's the way you work, fine. We're not. In general, um, I particularly am very loosey goosey with my rules. As long as I have my truths, I let my players dictate almost everything else. So this is a this is a rule that makes seems really fun to me. This might cause you to get very nervous. So if that's the case, yeah, I would ignore this completely. But uh, Rafer, is there anything else? Tr- I think I could have some fun with that one. <laughs> this is one of those rules that a game master would not use on you and I um, because 
remembering aspects of movies is something we generally do pretty well. Yeah, true. So. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, all right, let's get into the mechanics. Uh, uh, and and I, I want to talk about a mechanic that you you didn't put on our sheet, but I did notice while I was talking about the movie because this movie is so different from a lot of the other kids on bikes movies because it is uh, set in modern day. Uh, yes. And that is, and one of the dangers we have talked about with setting things in modern day that we've talked about with other movies and stuff is by setting it in other eras, you don't have to deal with cell phones. Right. And this movie actually makes really effective use of cell phones. They use them as flashlights when they're going into a dimly lit place. They use it as exposition in order to get Gloria's broadcast out, which is helping to, you know, provide the information that you as the audience need, but also that the characters kind of need in order to act on stuff. Um, and if you are careless with your cell phone, it could go off at the wrong time, alerting the enemy to the fact that you're trying to sneak around and suddenly there's a downfall to be had simply because you had your cell phone on you. And I think you can play with that as a mechanic in your game and go, okay, I don't have to take the cell phones away from the players. Uh, there are benefits to using them. There's also a danger in using them if you have them on you at the wrong time. And I think that gives you a little bit of fun. It gives the players a little bit to play with as well. And I, I think the movie does a really good job uh, in one of the unique times that we have a kids on bikes movie with cell phones in it. Yeah, yeah, and they only use the the trope of my battery died uh, a little bit as opposed to being the the way to to take it away from them. Right. Which I think is a real lazy way of of setting it up. And, and no, you're right. And having the um kind of uh, uh, Chekhov's ringtone um working, <laughs> you know, like when it when it goes off at the worst moment, it's not out of nowhere. You understand that this this you know again, your kids too. You know, right. kids are not thinking about what whether or not my phone is going to go off. And it also allows for an, a lifeline with with folks or, sure. you know, in a negative manner with like the parents can always get in touch with you. And I do think that maybe there's another truth about this, which is the parents have a way of taking some of your agency away. And maybe that is something that we could do. We could use as a game master narratively without making it feel like we're railroading. Um, having parents point. being an active part of your life is something that could be useful because having to sneak around your parents still gives your players agency, right? Like we talk about this with mm -hmm. um, the kid who would be king. They do have to sneak out of their house, but that's never an issue, right? For most films with kids on bikes, the parents just aren't around to be a problem. This gives you a non-lethal challenge in same way that um sometimes you give your pu your characters puzzles like sneaking yeah. into a into a building is always fun and it allows characters who rely on skill rather than combat to shine or skills rather than charm to shine so i think that works out really well like getting around your parents becomes a really fun part of of this story and i think some players would really appreciate that yeah that's some, true that's not true so much we like to talk about set pieces, um, and I think one of the important set pieces on this one is just a public affair, like the party. Like, this is uh, Little Mare is setting up uh, a party to save the bodega. So, again, this is again this is the Goonies part of it, right? Like, they are trying to save their town. And if they fail to find, you know, the, the pirate treasure, the town will be taken by developers. That is, again, in, in Goonies, the developers aren't vampires, but they, you know, they basically are. They're just not the actual threat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they're, they're the, the reason that this thing gets started to begin with. Um, 
So, I don't know, ticking clock? Is it necessary? I don't know about a ticking clock, but I think you're, I think the party is important for the story's climax, but I think you also need to have that home location that you are trying to save. I think you need that bodega. I think yeah. I think you need something like the bodega in your world. Now, whether or not they're trying to save it, whether or not... I uh, Personally, one of the things I liked about it, having seen a lot of... Uh, quite a few kids on bikes stories where their base of operations is somebody's basement or the library or, or something like that, here is... It's a public space. And yeah. by being a public space, which is the base of operations, that makes sense that the kids are in touch with the people who are in the neighborhood around them because they come into the bodega too. So I really, even if I didn't base an adventure on this movie, I might take that idea of making something a little more public as a base of operations for characters to help foster those relationships with the characters and the NPCs around them. Yeah. And like the last episode when we talked about the gate, which we I think we both decided that starting the gate with the party makes the most sense. It's a yeah. great way to kind of set up the tone and the the, the opening of the gate. The party is going to be the last thing in the game. Right. Um, That's the climax. You know, yeah. Whatever the climax is. Um, because and even though we didn't put it as a truth in that eventually the the neighborhood doesn't believe the kids and then they will believe the kids. I don't think that's as necessary because, yeah. again, the adults and the neighborhood coming together makes sense thematically, but it doesn't actually have an effect uh, on the overall outcome of this film. Like the kids were probably like, I, you know, the the kids are the ones who take out the vampires. It would have an effect on your game, though, because if yes. we are saying the parents are an adversary in in some in not yeah. in a, in a non lethal capacity, at the point that they believe the kids, th right. that's that's no longer there anymore. So yeah. that's that does change the dynamic of the game. And a good game master will be able to be whatever the you could use the callbacks uh, of a narrative to whatever the challenge was getting away from the parents, you could then use that challenge to be a benefit later. So like sure. it's like my grandmother's coming to stay with us and she's always watching me, so I have to get around her. But maybe it's the grandmother who notices something and like sets it up or or like Rita's grandmother who um, informs in from, you know, like that kind of a thing. I think it works out really well. Sure. There are a lot of systems that we have discussed over the year uh, in this season that you can play um you know, any any system could be used to play something like this. Again, when your your um, main protagonist and your your player characters are going to be kids, not every system is designed to play kids characters. So things like Kids on Bikes, obviously Junior Braves. Uh, we talked about Velvet Glove, which is specifically designed to be a girl gang from the 70s. It's a little bit more on the violent side, but because combat does exist, Velvet Glove isn't a bad idea. Uh, Blades in the Dark might not be bad because it does talk about one of the aspects of Blades of the Dark is understanding your immediate surroundings and who your connections are. It requires a little bit more of a tweak for that one. Uh, Meddling Kids from Panda Head Games is a really good one for it. Tales from the Loop um, does take place in modern day. So that's one of the things that, unlike, say, a Stranger Things kind of development or uh, you know something that takes place specifically in the 50s or the 60s or 70s, uh, Tales of Loop takes place in the, the close future, so that makes sense. Uh, Bubblegum Shoe uh, is a detective game. I think the first act of this is really about sneaking, finding, and getting information, so that would work. Little Fears, again, might work. That's from Key 20. And then there's a new one coming out called Cryptid Creeks by Hatchlings, and that's one that the Kickstarter we talked about a couple of episodes ago 
but that one's specifically a kids on bikes with a supernatural bent. So that one would be really good. So those are really Ooh. specific to uh, kids on bikes adventures. Um, but again, you could easily do something like this with Dungeons and Dragons. You could easily easily do something like this with Call of Cthulhu. There um, it is. I've been waiting for that one. <laughs> I know. I know. I exist to make you happy, unless it's the draft in which. Um, <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with my draft pick. I, okay. I am. Okay. All right. Time for a question for Drew, where oh, I throw a, a off-the-cuff question at Drew instead of uh, all the planning that he gets to do with the rest of this document. And uh, I, I was having trouble coming up with a question for this originally, but then I was thinking, you know, we, we talk about both in Lost Boys and earlier in this about the importance of developing your vampire mythos, you know, that... Uh, vampires can't enter unless they're invited, for example. Mm -hmm. Both films use that. Mirrors don't capture a vampire's reflection. This film adds on top of that that they can't be filmed either, which I, I loved that the way that, that was handled in here. And not just with your cell phones, but on security cameras as well. Right, right, right. Uh, but this film brings in a new one that I've never heard before, which is that holy water boils in the presence of a vampire. Yeah. That was an interesting one. So, Drew, what yeah. is your brand new element to the vampire mythos that never no, no, nobody has ever heard before? Oh, so come up with something totally new? Yep, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> uh, okay. Totally new, because there's so well, many but good... But it could be connected. I mean, like, we've always known about holy water being a weakness for vampires. Here, okay, they just added to not only as a weakness, but it also is kind of a... a, a Test to see if one's nearby. All right, what do you got? I got one for you. All right. And this is off the cuff, so so bear with me as I think this out. The vampire's movements are going to be really random to the players at first, and it's going to take a while for them to figure out that the whole reason that the vampires are selecting the businesses that they are is that the vampires are going to be basing it around the sewer system because vampires in some traditions mm -hmm. cannot cross running, running water. water. Yes. So in order to make this um, better, because we have sewer systems regardless of the time period, as long as you're not doing, uh, even yeah, actually even in fantasy, there's sewer. So if, again, if you're if you're playing, if you're playing in a town that has no concept of sewers, you have your own problems. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that your players will have fun is. Uh, learning that the vampires are basing their routes around avoiding crossing sewer systems. And one of the things that I think the vampires in your game could do is when they buy enough of the property, they have the clout to change uh, certain oh. aspects of that. So maybe certain streets have been closed down because they're working on the pipes to, to work with the buildings. But what they've done is they're turning off and shutting... Uh, redirecting the sewer around certain neighborhoods so that allows them to travel and they can travel either above ground or below ground. When I wrote that essay on uh, vampire powers, which mm -hmm. I, I remind me to share that with you, Drew, but when yeah, I wrote that, that cool. one, that was one of them that I talked about. Like I, most movies don't use this because why? Like, I, I, like, I don't know that I would recommend using this in your game, but here it is anyway, because that's, that is a tricky one. Like, to enforce or to come up with, but I like that. I like that, that you are using that limitation uh, in a new way. I like that a lot. 
Good. Well, thank you. Yeah. I've only seen one movie in which running water has been uh, used um, against vampires. Uh, it was one of the Christopher Lee Dracula films uh, it, from, from Hammer. And they don't use it in the same way because the battle takes pl- the final battle takes place on a frozen river and allows Dracula to walk across it because it's not flowing. And so, like, they have to break the ice in mm. order to to trick him into into that positioning, uh, which is really cool. It's a very smart idea uh, of doing it. But, um, yeah, I think if we're still looking for an urban setting, I think that works from a city part. Yeah. So there we go. That does it, I think, unless you have anything else to, to add about uh, Van... I liked this movie, Drew. This was a good pick. This was a good yeah, pick. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad that um, both John and Doug emphasized that that recommendation. Um, it was one of the things that I have reached out for them, actually, to see if they wanted to discuss this with us, but it would have probably gone even longer than we actually did. Um, <laughs> I, I agreed. I think this is a really good way of ending this. It has uh, both some similarities and a lot of different stuff that we get from our traditional Kids on Bikes films. Um, and I'm sure we'll think of more stuff. Speaking yeah. of which, uh, join us in several weeks for our Vampires vs. the Bronx intermission episode where we'll discuss our second opinions, what we may have missed about the film uh, the first time around. We'll go over listener emails. We'll chat about what's grabbed our attention in crowdfunding, answer your podcasting homework, discuss our final episode of our first season. Uh, And if you have any opinions of your own about anything we've discussed today, you can join in that conversation by emailing us at theneversaydiepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook group, which is the Never Say Diecast. And... We're also on Twitter at Never Say Diecast. Uh, while Twitter, <laughs> we, we, I feel like we're getting even closer to Twitter's demise. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and to Megan Daly for our show artwork. And remember, even if you have to use guilt to get the draft pick that you want, never say die. <laughs>